Hi everyone, Ursula here. I hope you're all in good health and in relatively good spirits. Unfortunately, my co-host Marsha is actually sick this week, although please don't worry, she has ascertained that it is not COVID-19. Um, but she's a bit out of commission, so we did not record a new episode, and we're running something that originally aired uh, a year ago instead. So uh, in our last episode, we discussed the work of the Syrian novelist Dima Wanous, and we mentioned uh, that her father was a very talented and famous playwright, Saadala Wanous. We actually discussed his work a year ago, on the occasion of a new translation into English of some of his uh, plays and essays. And so we're going to be rerunning that episode now. I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed reading and discussing his work. And um, we'll be back in two weeks with new content. In the meantime, take care. I asked myself that morning in June, why do we write? Asking myself that question made me feel as if I were swallowing a handful of razor blades. It was a harmful, excruciating question for which there was no answer. Words were defeated and language had collapsed. One might say that, in one sense, there had never been a defeat in which words played such a large role as they had in the June defeat. I felt that words had become traps into which we would fall. Words had become ruses or decomposing bodies whose fumes were then transformed into terrified shame and icy disgrace within us. I remember the speeches, radio broadcasts, declarations, announcements, slogans, boastful statements and vituperations, and then language falling apart as if it were composed solely of sand and foam. When I started writing an evening's entertainment for the 5th of June, I wanted to express how impossible it was to write how empty words were. What good are words, in fact, when what we need is action, which cleanses us of the humbug of words and of their decaying stench that is dispensed in the searing heat of defeat? What good are words if action is not assimilated into them so that it forms them? And that's from The Dream Falls Apart, an essay by Saada la who we are going to be talking about on um, this episode 27 of the Bulak podcast. Um, this is Ursula Lindsay reading to you with Marsha Links Quayley. Uh, and we're f- from, from this new edition, uh, English uh, translation of several works by Sadala Wanous called Sentence to Hope, uh, translated by Robert Myers and Nada Saab. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing the names right? Hi. <laughs> Often don't. Apologies. Um, and this contains uh, four of his plays, I Four think. plays, several essays, and interviews. So I had heard about him years ago, actually, from two uh, Syrian brother playwrights who uh, sort of washed up in Cairo early on after leaving Syria or soon mm-hmm. after the Syrian uprising had had started. Um, and then I had read uh, an essay about him that also made him sound very exciting. So I was, you know, super excited to read about this. Perhaps we should talk a little bit, just give, sort of give the broad outlines of, of who he was. He's a major... Uh, I mean, major world playwright, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and did give the World Theatre Day address in 1996, I think. He was the first Arab writer asked to do that. And it, world Theatre Address is an address that's been given by Dario Fo and Wale Sienka and and other, you know, major playwrights. And so uh, Sadala Wanous was born in 1941 in, in a, a pretty small town uh, west of Homs on the uh, Mediterranean. It's the body of water there, I'm pretty sure. And he went to study in Cairo, which is, I believe, where he came into contact with the, the writing of Tafik al-Hakim. And he studied journalism. And he studied journalism, yes. Because why not? Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, Tafik al-Hakim's sort of theater of the mind, uh, theater for the page, this very intellectual theater, I, I think was his his first formative theater. Not being a one who's scholar, I'm just sort of making that up here. Then he went back to Syria, and he did for a time edit... Uh, the theater pages, uh, 
of this of the uh, cultural section of a, a state newspaper that I think was later forbidden from writing a, even his name. Um, it, he had a quite fraught relationship with the um, with the Assad regime, mm. uh, I, I think because you know his sort of his mere existence. He he said at one point was propaganda. You know the fact that he was an innovative playwright. Um, he had you know what is generally considered two major periods of writing um, before. 1977, he wrote a number of his works, maybe, I don't know, a dozen of them or more. And then there was a long period in which he didn't write. Uh, he attempted suicide during this period. Uh, he talks about the crypts of my depression. Uh, and then the, he first started, started writing again in 89. And it, there was a great, a big shift in, in his writing at that point. Uh, it was 90. Two, I think, when he was diagnosed with cancer of the pharynx. And after that, a tremendous rush of creative energy. And uh, he, he even said in his World Theatre Day address how he, writing was his the biggest way or his big, best tool in, in fighting cancer, something like that. Um, and, and so he really wrote uh, two of the plays in this collection are from his, the last years of his life. And then he died in 1997 at just 56, I think. Uh, and, and so this um, this edition, which is sort of the first English language edition for a general audience, yes, um, that's being published by uh, Yale University Press. Yale University Press, but the translators are professors at the American University in Beirut. Yes. Um, is also part of a sort of, um, like, he's always been um, a major reference uh, in literary and theater circles. In um, Arabic. In Arabic, but this is part of a kind of, uh, discovery is the wrong word, but in a way, a, a sort of renewed interest in his work internationally that coincides partly with, like, this Syrian uprising and 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 civil war and the and all the questions that that has like raised again um right ab about a progressive democratic egalitarian politics the possibility thereof i right. think um so i think you were telling me that also his work has been staged m for now more often in english in, in english recent... translation yes so um uh there was a a publication called in 2012 called Doomed to Hope um, that came out of this um, sort of fomentation and fresh interest in his work, in, particularly in Beirut. Um, there are a number, so Marvin Carlson and these two editors and some other people were involved in, in translating Sadala Wanus's work into English and bring, there have been some stagings. I know there was one in Boston um, there were a number of stagings in Beirut. There, you know, sort of post-2011 fresh interest in, in this work that is very challenging to both autocracy and patriarchy. Yeah, and imperialism and sort of global capitalism. Right, um, yes, yeah. Because, because he is part of a... Of a of a leftist tradition in the region, but of a, what I find very sort of is my kind of leftist. It's a very humanist right. leftist. Basically, it's not ideologically rigid. Right. Constantly um, self-critical. Right. And the quote you just read, um, which is sort of uh, you know, so about this moment um, after uh, the Six Day War in 1967, in which. Um, the Israeli victory sort of traumatized. Right, um, 100,000 Syrians had to flee the Golan Heights approximately. Right, and it, and it sort of undermined the entire, um, you know, sort of new uh, nationalist aspirations of a lot of these regimes, both the images that the governments had projected, but also uh, sort of um, this this desire for uh, for sovereignty, um, for like self determination in the region, um, I think was dealt this like huge blow mm. by 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 the result of that conflict. And his the way he describes sort of all the like 
disingenuousness and bloviating and I mean that not only did the authorities literally lie about what was happening during the war as it was happening but then there was just I think this 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 rush to sort of rhetorically pave it over immediately um while at the same time people like him a lot of artists suddenly it was this moment of like soul searching and criticism and kind of a break between the intellectual classes in their support for the their governments because they hadn't delivered you know what they what they had promised mm-hmm. Um, and so, which is the topic of the first play that's included in the in the book, an evening of entertainment. An evening's entertainment for the fifth of June, which is also an example of um, the kind of theater that he was trying to do early in his career. Which is in the in the translation, I think they describe it as a theater of politicization. Uh, rather than political theater. Um, So so theater that would sort of actively provoke the audiences. um, And so so, so perhaps... And it is quite provocative. I think it works very well. I mean, I think he's... it's, It's a very sort of like strongly structured setup, right? So... It, basically, it starts out, there's like the director of the theater kind of apologizing to the audience for how this performance is not going to be as planned. And he brings up the screenwriter and they sort of start, you know, arguing in, in, in front of the audience and describing, you know, what's led up to this opening night performance that is not going according to plan. Uh, and then I think there are actors in the audience who are there as... Right, the spectators. As audience, yeah, exactly, and who have been given lines. And he says the whole thing is like a framework and people should feel free to improvise as they like with right. it. But basically... And that he would have been delighted if audi- actual audience members had also interrupted. Right, so he sort of creates a situation in which he, there's there's a there's a debate going on and then people from the audience also start to step up and like recount... Uh, basically, uh, what happened uh, in their village during the war, this recent war? I love the character of the director, who yes. sort of represents the. Um, how would you describe it? Uh, the sort of establishment, the artist co-opted by the state, I guess. Right, right. But who's very sincere, also in yes, his sure. like belief that in like his patriotic, <laughs> right, and that the purpose of culture is basically to sort of serve serve the serve authority kind of and like reimpose authority like very quickly reimpose a narrative um that does not lead to debate right right? that just kind of makes people feel better unites them um yeah and when all else fails get some dancers and singers on stage right right. i think it must be quite funny when it's staged like Mm. you know because often on the page what doesn't come across is like there's a lot of physical humor that could be going on right um yeah so he keeps trying to get this folkloric troupe to sort of they keep getting interrupted um and uh and and then it leads to eventually like half the performers and people who have gotten up on the stage being arrested right and, and and then blocking the doors so that the audience can't leave. Right, right. And even that is staged in a way to make audience members realize that the theater has been shut down. Or and, right. And then pre- there's like multiple triggers within the play at which the audience could react, right? They could be yelling things out. Uh, they could uh, get upset about being locked in the theater. Uh, I think the final one is you know, they could intervene when people are arrested. They could have some sort of reaction to the arrest itself. Right. Um, and that's clearly all uh, part of his goal is is to have that reaction. Right. Although I think he says... He was... Uh, so the play was censored in Syria for some time um, and I think was only staged outside of Syria. And then when it was finally staged in Syria, he spoke about how disappointed he was that people smiled, they laughed, they applauded, then they left, and he was, where was the demonstration? So that's in that essay where he talks about wanting to write um, in a way that words um, are not just words, but are also sort of uh, seeds of action. Um, he, he's, he's, he's very touchingly honest about, about writing this play, thinking that, you know, as he wrote it, that he was 
sort of writing a kind of uh, blueprint for with he was writing it with an audience within mind an audience that might revolt on the spot right uh, yes. you know and of course that never happened right the audience uh, knew they were the audience and they knew the people who were the spectators were actors and they appreciated how it was built Right, so he got a lot of compliments on mm-hmm. the actual, and I liked how he, he says, he says like one of the most disappointing things to him was he got this letter from Adonis saying right. like how like superb it was on the a technical level. Yes. And, and, and that had not been his goal, at, that had not been what he was concerned with. And um, so, so, so yeah, I think he ran in quite early, he ran into the, the, the hard, the limits um, of what he could um, provoke in the audience, although um, that didn't make him stop, for, uh, you know, doing pieces that were very much intended to open spaces for debate or for dialogue, even if not in the theater in the moment, perhaps afterwards. Right. Well, then the next play in this collection, the head of Mamluk Jebber, he, he has um, an interview at the end where uh, he talks about its reception in Moscow and how appreciative audiences in Russia were of this sort of play about autocracy and personal responsibility and, um, you know, the different power dynamics between the powerful and the ordinary people and whether you can just, well, we just keep our heads down and go about living our lives or, you know, whether that's a failed strategy from the start. So he did, he didn't sort of give up after writing that play, no, I mean the 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 title of the connect of the collection, this sentence to hope or the condemned mm. to hope, I doomed mean, to hope, right? This, this is this is the from, from this from the speech that he gave at the end of his life, and it's sort of one of his most famous quotes, and I, it gets used often in in describing his sort of political orientation because it, it is it's 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 a very um, uh, I mean, he says also in one of the essays later on that he has been stripped of all his delusions or purged of his delusions. Like he, it is, it is not uh, a hope uh, that is based on sort of denying reality at all. But it's a sort of you know this position that what else can you do except keep on working? I find his commitment to theater as a medium so uh, inspiring. And I mean, I don't go to that much theater, and I, I definitely. Uh, focus more on, on literature than, than theater. And, but then reading his sort of reflections on like what theater can accomplish. And I, I really, I I found it very, very moving. Um, this idea that, uh, that the social aspect of it, of sort of people coming together is, has, has so much, uh, potential, like political potential and social potential to make people have collective conversations. And then you do realize how rare that is for that, mm-hmm. that, that you know, that theater as a, has become a very marginalized medium, not just for political reasons, but just because the way we consume entertainment today is so individualistic. Yeah. And, and that we don't have many of those spaces where you have that kind of uh, collective uh, experience of, of a work of art. Which is kind of something that that shift from his belief in the potential of theater um, to have an impact is something that sort of distinguishes what people usually consider the two big phases of his career. right. Right. So after 77, which is, I think, when Sadat went to Jerusalem, right, uh, he stopped writing for a decade. And I, I don't know enough about him and his work to know exactly what triggered it, but that there was 10 years of a lot of silence. Personal depression, Personal I think. depression. He says he read a lot. Attempt. Yes. Um, and he came out of that very transformed in in how he addressed a number of things and i think gender is one of them that strikes me immediately particularly in how they've formed this collection right so there's sort of two, maybe two plays there's two late from the plays. earlier period two and plays two from the, early from the two, late two from two that were published in 94 just two years before he died oh three years before he died so certainly when you get to a play like wretched dreams which is it belongs to the later years um there's two 
very prominent female characters, whereas in the early play, there's no prominent female characters. There are no named female characters, I don't think at all, in the earlier plays. They're like wife of spectator number three. And then the whole plot of Wretched is like two women, both of them in very different and, and, and very... In, I find the male characters in that play, they're monstrous, but they're, they're, they're quite good. Right, um, yes. Per, they're very deformed, but they're deformed in very specific ways. Yeah, in very individualized and sort of striking ways. And, and the women, the whole place, the women want to, you know, k- kill them and get rid of them and free right. themselves. Which is pretty reasonable in this case, I think. Yeah, I almost think so, like, you know, there's the sort of brute who represents, to a large extent, he, I think he works in the security services. Right, he because rep- he's hiring the other guy as an informant, so. Right, and he's sort of like both traditional patriarchy, but also, but then, traditional patriarchy, of course, but then who thinks of himself actually as modern and the future of the country. Right, nationalist, autocratic, belonging to the state, but it's a good portrait of an abuser in the sense that he also, like, that makes him sound like nothing but a metaphor, but then he does kind of toggle back and forth in this ways between, like, you know, affection and possessiveness and constantly telling her, like, if you would just do what I say, like, we wouldn't have any problems. Like, right. why are you always, you know, provoking me? And and then the other one's even more memorable as the character, the, like, really manipulative right. husband who uses his weakness to control his wife. Yes. He's always sort of playing, being pathetic and helpless. Right. What a character. Right. They're, they're, they're all four excellent characters. Um, so the, the, the weak man who's manipulating his, you know, can, whose wife has done not only, of course, all the housework, uh, but also... She earns earns all the money for them as well, and he from the beginning. Also, there's a wonderful part about how we don't talk about sex and all all how we don't talk about the body around women because sort of the defining moment of that woman's life is that she married this weaselly guy, and he had an STD when they got married, and. As her body, you know, these things started happening to her body and she, you know, she had discharge and she didn't know pain. She didn't know what was going on. She asked, she kind of quietly asked some people and nobody would really, nobody could really tell her what was going on. When she finally went to a doctor, they were like, good Lord, you've had this, you know, you've had this outrageous STD for so long. Um, And then she is, she, she miscarries because of this long, long standing STD. Um, and, and then there's another woman who lives in the building for a while and she, you know, make, makes noises during sex. And when, you know, this this woman asks her about it, you know, she, she has like such a conflicted feeling about it. Like, well, she's, it's maybe she, she shouldn't be doing that. And yet she seems kind of joyful in general in her life and like kind of laughing at this. And also knowledgeable. Like right. that, it's that woman who's having the loud sex in the building and who who who's like... Wait, this isn't okay. You, you gotta need go to, to a go doctor. see a doctor. There's something not normal here. Um, yeah. So, so at, compared to the earlier play, where not only are there n- no female characters, the subject is not relations within couples. When gender's invoked, it's uh, you know the the male characters using these like really misogynistic kind of metaphors for you know defeat and surrender and submission. For example, in the war, is sort of like described in like sexualized terms. Um, it, so so those are kind of like the only references. And then it's suddenly out of no it's gender awareness kind of like just blossoms into his work. Right. Well, and in that that first the entertainment for the fifth of June, there's a big deal. How, what do we do? If we're invaded, if the the town is taken over, what do we do about our women? Oh, I have a solution. Let's just murder all of them right. uh, preventatively, prophylactically murder all the women, and then whoop, problems taken care of. Which presumably, so he's including that in this in the in the play, you know, as a, it, it critically, he's showing that that is one of the like it was you a know, poor decision on their part. The ways in which society does not react to you know to to to, to this outside threat to this invasion, but it's so not the folk. It's sort of in passing almost. Um, it's not the focus, and I and I suspect that this focus on 
gender and on women's point of view goes along with this other shift between the sort of so-called, you know, earlier and later phases of his work, which is where he says that he um, became so much more concerned with... Like, first, he thought the only problem was, like, who was in charge, that it was mm-hmm. just a political problem of, like, who has authority. And then he realized that... And the structure of authority. How is authority held? Right. That what we need is democracy, basically. More democracy. And that in the 60s and 70s, he was part of this whole generation who believed that they were, you know... Uh, that that the governments, that, that these new countries were more or less progressive and that they were like, there was a little bit of democracy and eventually there'd be more and their job was to sort of push for more mm. um, and to push for the right people to be in charge, that the right people weren't in charge. Whereas, you know, later when he comes back to write, he's much more interested in what he sort of says, society and the relationship between society and authority, you know, all the way from politics down to the individual and right. the sort of freedom of the individual. Um, and the deformation of patriarchy, I think, is a huge part of that. Both on, I, I read it both as how the women characters are affected and how the male characters are sort of, you know, grotesque. These two men are... Uh, uh, they're they're very real in, in this uh, in this play, but they're also uh, sort of a grotesquerie of how, because of these masculine norms that they're, you know, the one guy can't he, he thinks he loves his wife, he thinks if she would just behave everything would just be fine, but he cannot see his wife at all because all he can see is sort of his expectation of how these relationships are supposed to work out. The neediness, too, is very well represented, yeah. where it's uh, it's not so much that the, ma- the male characters dominate the female characters out of, like, total desperate need to control them. Yes. Yeah, no, he, uh, particularly the, I mean, of course, there's the, the weaselly, uh, can you give me a, a half, no, a, a full. He's the worst. Yeah. He does some of the worst things in that story. Yeah, and he's sort of happy to be an inform. I mean, an informant. I get a full time job. Awesome. Always wanted to have a salary of some kind, a secret salary that his wife will never know about, and he can still ask her for the same amount of money. Yeah. Um, go around spying on everybody in the neighborhood. Lovely. And then the the there's the subsequent play also has some very strong female characters. Um, the um, rituals of signs and transformations, right? And it also has queer characters, right? And there is, uh, I think, a starting to attempt to come to grips with sexuality uh, and and male male relationships. You know, I don't think you would read it now and be like, this is the cutting edge, you know, this play that he wrote in 1994 is the cutting edge of uh, queer theory. But I think it's, I found it, his ideas still very compelling. Yeah, I think it really does. I mean, it's it's a an, an attempt to, again, it's, it, it both looks at like people's sexual identities and their, their sexual needs and their gender roles so like the two men that have this homosexual relationship whether they identify as homosexual or not um are they're also there's like a whole conversation between them about like masculinity and whether and desire and whether sort of being openly uh in this kind of relationship is is like removes their masculinity and is and and you have a character arguing for like you know, that, that being out, being out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so one of them is like, yes, we can be in this relationship as long as it's entirely closeted and nobody knows. That and we gay. continue to act as very as traditional the, because they are the, the thugs. Right. And they're sort of hired thugs. And the other one crosses this line. It's like, no, I want to sort of quote unquote humiliate myself in public because this is what my love for I want everyone to know. Right. I want. I want to be honest. Right. Um, and and similarly, the female character with this decision to go from being a respectable wife to being a prostitute, prostitute. also sort of does this like kind of very, 
you know, slightly melodramatic gesture of kind of throwing all conventions of propriety away. Right. um, In some sort of affirmation of her own sexual freedom. And and that that sort of somehow something freedom has to come sort of through the... The, the, the trials of almost public humiliation. Right, yes, yes. Well, because there's a Sufi element to it as well, um, and, and where self-abnegation is the route that you, where, to which you find God and to which you find liberation, you know, spiritual liberation, liberation from your baser desires, you have to go through this uh, public humiliation. Because there's a character as well, the, the ex-husband of this woman who becomes a prostitute, who... Uh, you know, he resigns as a noble of the uh, of the community, and you know, takes off his turban, and, and he commits to this Sufi path of, you know, having children follow him around and humiliate him, specifically choosing to be humiliated in order to find a new path. Mm. So I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what he's saying there politically that this is the route to freedom, but. But it's there in all of the major narratives in in that play, I think. I'm looking for. Uh, I think he speaks to this a little bit in the in the essays at the end. Um, there's a interview that he has with a journalist uh, with Mary. Oh Ilias. yes, the last interview. That's a wonderful interview. So she's the first person, at least in the interviews included, to really kind of ask him about gender and some of these other issues. Yeah, and he says um, he says so many interesting things. I've, like, uh, underlined a, a ton. But she asks him, it seems to me, like, in your later plays, the process of individual emancipation is sort of the theme, rather than in your earlier work, um, these sort of uh, broader political questions. And, and he says yes, and that in his earlier work, he sort of thought we could intervene in the events and the history of this region. Um, and uh, and in a way, the focus, I mean, in a way, par- part of the, the sort of trajectory of his work is actually losing that belief or f- having that belief be severely undermined that right well i think he's i think he still believes in transformation you know that yeah the title of that last play is transformation so we're still changing but you know the site of social change is 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 moved from sort of a grand narrative of all these people on the stage spectator and director to a, a, a personal narrative where the battles are with individuals and not just individuals like he's not saying well class doesn't exist and patriarchy doesn't exist but that many of these battles he, he's interested in how these battles are playing out on in specific people. in specific cases yeah I mean so the other the other thing that I underlined from that interview is um, that he says, the, in this, in these last years, when he's like writing all these plays, you know, as he sort of uh, already knows that he's he's sick and he's going to die. Says for the first time, I feel that writing is a form of freedom. I used to exercise a kind of self censorship in my writing, an internal censorship that rested on the idea or delusion that what is secondary should be set aside for the sake of what I believed to be important causes. For the first time, I feel writing is a pleasure. Yes, I'd forgotten that line. It's beautiful. There's also just so much in there. Yes. You know, yeah, there's just there's just so much to think about in mm. that that he allows himself to include things that he thought uh, you know, were unimportant. Uh, and 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 that that is what gives him the the greatest joy. I mean, and and that his and that he, and that his work does in a way become less uh, for the people, right? Um, that he accepts that his work is not, you know, he says it's a, for the first time I was not picturing a specific audience for my work, because in his original conception is like you have to start with the audience. This work is for, you know, your theater should be for the people, and then you work back from that and you figure out what they need to talk about, and mm-hmm. and then later on, 
you know, he's saying, I didn't, there's no audience. The audience sort of disappeared. Right. Um, it's a very different conception. What's amazing is that the works from both periods are good. Both things work. Both yes. approaches. Right. Uh, you know. Artistically. Yeah. Both are very impressive and interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and But this later sort of like uh, realization of, okay, so I'm, I'm working in a marginalized art form. I can't connect to the masses through it. So all I will do is tell the truth and write about the things that concern me. Um, it's a bit sad given his political aspirations, but it's also, you know, then produces this, these really strong works that I think can connect to the, it's just that you can't determine. Right. You can't also can't determine when. Right. So maybe people will erupt in demonstrations (laughs) after watching uh, entertainment for the 5th of June, but not yet. Well, in any case, um, it's it's always entirely un- impossible to predict when people will erupt in demonstrations. That's sort of like the inherent nature of a demonstration of a big one is that right. is that it has to sort of come as a surprise. And we're seeing, you know, uh, this week these huge protests in in Algeria against uh, the Bouteflika's fifth term, Germantocracy. which I can't help thing, feeling very moved by when I see, I just find something so, I mean, not that I romanticize these things or that I think necessarily, I think I've become much less optimistic uh, because of the experiences of the of the last eight years. But whenever sort of I, you see these moments of communal you know, no, expression I was and rebellion and, and, and humor and... Yes. No, I was talking to an Egyptian friend and he was saying that he was having, you know, trouble not getting pulled into the romanticism of it. Yeah. And feeling that there we were again on January 25th, 2011. <laughs> yeah. And with it staging like the mock funerals for Bouteflika and, um, and, 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 and being quite funny. And also you always sort of, uh, there's something that is so kind of like, you know, viscerally a little bit exciting when people um, reach those kind of numbers Yes, where it can't be repressed or, or, or the repression you know would have to be extremely violent but so far in Algeria you know if you move out in such great numbers um all of a sudden then you suddenly create this space where it's okay to th- say things that it wasn't okay to say yesterday right and you can see that people are proud of it and that you know I mean it, and that it's fun Yes, mm-hmm. yes, that it's thrilling. Yeah, that, that there is a pleasure to it. As, yeah, uh, it is a form of public performance, mm-hmm. of public action, of word and action. I mean, demonstrating is theatrical. I think that... Right, that, but people are also writing sort of miniature scripts with each of their signs. I mean, it's kind of a a, a collaborative form of, of theater. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember, I mean, in Egypt, like, the very specifically staged things that people would do in Tahrir sometimes, like, the way they would receive people, how they would, like, be lined up and chanting certain songs. And it it would be, it it, it was a kind of performance for you as you came in to sort of tell you the story of this space. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, many of these things are prepared beforehand. I think there's, like, a mythology sometimes to protest, like, as if people came up with these chants and uh, on the spot. Um, but the, it's also, it does have room for innovation. Oh, yeah. For, um, for a lot of creativity. Right. And then there's always, like, the people who are really good at coming up with stuff on the spot. Right. And there's always The some, improv protesters. Yeah, there's always, like, really good, people who are really good with chants. Um, and then there's always, like, you know, people who come up with something clever and evocative and then it gets copied right you know it spreads by everyone um and then it appears in other protests in other cities that you know that these sorts of things have uh, their own kind of archiving system yeah yeah absolutely and and then I saw that around uh, what's happened in Algeria and what's happening in Sudan, and there was like a smaller protest in Morocco. You're sort of mm. getting people writing this sort of like the Arab Spring isn't you know isn't as dead as you think kind of pieces this <laughs> week. Yes. That's like been a kind of narrative, um, which I, which which of course then on some level I completely agree with in the sense that like 
the the asp- people's aspirations have not right. Well, it hasn't been, been resolved, so of exactly. course it's not over. If anything, it's you know it's people's aspirations are less met than ever at the yes. moment, and the underlying conditions are the same, and you you simply cannot uh, crush uh, the, the 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 will to to, to to live and to be at all happy uh, out of to hope, millions right? of people, right? Um, so. Uh, Nothing is resolved. No, and 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 people like Wanus uh, to me are sort of like really um, comforting to come into contact with these kinds of voices um, because they remind you that there's a deep and long tradition of all these admirable people who are sort of committed to this progressive, democratic, egalitarian, self-critical, like. Mm-hmm. Uh, project uh that that of course is anathema to all these powers in the region but he very much in his later phase reminds me of Arwa Saleh whose work we've talked about um in Egypt and who I I wrote about not that long ago in this piece sort of about like what what the left what the Arab left can do with its defeat or like how to deal with what seems like a pretty devastating defeat of the of the left um, but she also kind of moved from certainties to doubts, uh, from, he has this, he has this great quote about how, like, the role of the intellectual perhaps is mainly to be a critic, mm-hmm. um, rather than to sort of, like, spout certainties, um, and, 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 and this move from sort of, from uh, down to the individual, um, and down to sort of, you know, mostly, uh, acting as a critic of oneself, of one's own political right, and the specificity of gender relations and her, evol- her her views on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I see, I see a lot of these, a lot of these, these figures. I think are are they they start to form a kind of family in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you know, these are the sorts of figures that one can connect to across time because it, they remain relevant to. The things that are important uh, to us now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they do get recovered by subsequent generations. Like they are a reference point, just like someone like Wanus. Apparently, I mean, this is mostly from an essay I read about him. Spent partly in that time period when he was like not writing and reading. He went back to a lot of to look at the work of a lot of right um, intellectuals and artists from the Nahda, Nahda right. onwards to sort of because he felt like there was this. Development that was basically interrupted by colonialism and then nationalism, where like Arab intellectuals were not allowed to continue in what had been a very interesting attempt to articulate their own project for modernity. Right. What I found really fascinating about that is he sort of reimagines his own beginnings. Right. So he's a student in Cairo. He he's you know he's seeing the beginnings of Arab theater through Tawfiq al Hakim, and then later in this dark period, he's sort of reimagining his own history, his own beginnings through these Lebanese playwrights who are earlier and and different from how Tawfiq al Hakim sort of imagined theater. So that in order to change during this period, he he sort of reimagined the trajectory of theater and his relationship to it. That doesn't surprise me, though, that um, as someone who is as thoughtful, sort of, and and critical and evolving as an artist mm-hmm. would would also have multiple sort of narratives about him. You know, see his work within different narratives as as time goes on. Right. Anyway, I think it's a very. Um, it's a very useful introduction to the work. You get a sense of the really like dramatic force of a lot of these pieces, of the sort of the way they're just put together um, is very powerful. The characters, especially in the later pieces, are very um, developed. Right. I would say I don't know, the the language um, the. The language in the play, sometimes one gets the impression that um, there's sometimes a bit of awkwardness in the dialogue. Sometimes you get the feeling that something that was witty, some of the doesn't quite translate. Um, just sometimes it reads as you're trying to guess what the original was. Right. It's too much referring to something that you don't know 
you can see there's something behind it, right? But it doesn't stand out on its own quite as just a, a a line that reads fluidly. Yes, in in English. But but I mean, but that said, I think overall it's 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 quite solid transition, and the the inclusion of the essays is very nice. Yes. No, I had read his work before, and I I, I guess. I'd had an admiring relationship with it, but not an intimate relationship with it. And now the inclusion of these essays and interviews, and not only do I sort of re-see his work, but I take him on board. You know, you know, I he's now my playwright. I he I can much more incorporate him into sort of my personal oeuvre because I I also know what he was thinking and how he reflected back on his work, and it really illuminates the works. And also, I think it, it does it by through the selection without even spelling it out. Like, for example, the way genders developed across the four plays, it just you you see it for yourself just by the ones they've included. Right. And similarly with some of the essays, because there's not there's no paratext around that. There's just the essays, but they're quite well selected to to, to sort of f- for you to see a narrative there that's not even they don't even need to to spell it out. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, well, so we were also going to talk about, um, just a disturbing contemporary news item out of Cairo, where there's no lack of disturbing Right, news. where there are not pro- currently protests going on, and where, quite the contrary, there is a silencing going on, and I think an intensification of punishment over, over speaking out that... I haven't seen in, in Cairo during my time of, of observing it. This seems to be the most intensely observed time uh, f- for literature and publication. So I first heard about Khaled Lotfi, who uh, opened Dartan Meya first as a bookshop after 2011, and then Dartan Meya Publishing House, uh, which publishes a lot of translations, but also publishes some original work, including some award-winning children's picture books. Some of the Mahmoud Darwish poetry picture books that I was really excited about were Dartan Meya books. And uh, first I got sort of direct messages over Twitter telling me that he had been uh, sentenced to five years in a secret military trial, but don't connect this with my name at all. And when was this? When did you first hear about it? Maybe mid-February. It happened okay. in early February. Uh, and then uh, and then it was only... The only person I saw at, in the first wave of speaking about it publicly, it, and it, it didn't appear in the media for days after I... You know, people were first talking about it in a very hushed tone, um, was Ahmed Neji, who, who is in, in the U.S. So... And he did of course, spent his own time in prison for his his book. Um, and uh, he was the first to say, come on, this guy gave a lot to us. This mm. guy contributed a great deal to the literary scene. We can't just... Not talk about not what's Not talk about what's going... Because there was sense, because people were afraid. People were afraid. And, and also one guy uh, who didn't want to be named told me that the family had originally wanted to keep this uh, mm. quiet and that they thought somehow that would it would go better for them if it, if it were quiet. Um, so what he's the, the charges are both spreading rumors and giving military secrets for republishing uh, this book called in Arabic it's called uh, the Angel. Um, I can't remember what it's called in English right now but will be in the show notes about uh, an Egyptian guy who was the son-in-law of Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was apparently a spy for Israel. I think it's called The Egyptian Who Saved Israel in the English. It was originally written in Hebrew. It was translated by a Lebanese publisher, Arab Scientific, and what Khalid is in trouble for is making an Egyptian edition of the Arabic translation. But the book has been available for some time. The book has been available in both... English and Arabic for some time. Anybody can get it. And there's like it. a movie or something. There's a been... Netflix uh, thriller about it. And people have told me that is easily available, uh, Mina Netflix. I mean, I can get it in here. Uh, people say you can get it in Cairo as well. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's, I think, this is also a performative act. It's about, you will, you know, it's about scaring people into self-censorship. Like it's about you cannot speak about the military in any way, any time, any place. And 
yeah, I mean, I think also like the nature of these sort of dictatorial regimes is to be arbitrary. Yeah, like they do exactly. not need to justify themselves. They don't need to make sense. It doesn't need to be uh, legal. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be rational. It's that sort of, we can do whatever we want. Right. And of course it's a lot scarier if it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, and if, it, if it was following the rules that made sense to everybody, like you wouldn't need, like if, if everybody agreed with you, that would, that would, you wouldn't actually be, uh, an authoritarian regime. Like what they're, what they're, what they, what they need to do is tell people you will agree, you will do what we say, whether you agree or not. Right. You will repeat what we say, whether you believe it or not. Right. I mean, for instance, Ahmed's book for which he went to prison, which utterly flabbergasted me at the time, because there are many books that are much more sexually out there. But he wasn't tried by the military. No, no, that was that, a public worse trial. For this, for this author, I think, is like you have even less due process in military trials. Like they are just absolutely scandalously well, I have lacking no idea what process. happened during it. I mean, I, yeah, I think they can be very quick. And, 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 you know, there was during the revolution, this big, this significant movement, uh, you know, l largely led or, you know, one of the most prominent figures in it was Mona Saif, mm. um, uh, the young activists and from this famous family of activists uh, against military trials for civilians. Right. But what in the world is the military doing? Like these are, military trials are supposed to be sort of exceptional. Due right. process is much less. You get much less access to lawyers. Evidentiary uh, requirements are less. Like it's supposed to be exceptional trials for soldiers. Yeah, like, Khalid and, is not a soldier. And even then it's probably not fair to the soldier. You have to right. be very careful about it not being abused. But in Egypt it's like spread like a cancer and now the army can apparently just try anybody they want like you can try some poor publisher in a military trial uh, it's it's this spread also of their jurisdiction over everything right. it's like endless you know ink stain of 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 their jurisdiction and that's what you know you're saying this is the worst time ever for freedom of expression it is because you have these security apparatus and military apparatus that is is just a machinery that's in motion now to constantly assert more authority. There is no part of the machinery that is that is can act as a countervailing right, force. Right, that has its own checks or balances internally. And they're trying to assert more authority against each other. Like every institution with power is trying to spread their power. There's also sort of, you know, underlying economic motives for this often. So they're sort right. of taking economic control of things. But taking this kind of control in indirect ways, you know, extends your, your power. And, right. so, and so you just have these unchecked institutions uh, yeah. cannibalizing public space and the state. And it's just so upsetting. <laughs> yeah, the, these spaces that before were considered, yeah, this sort of elite space or this tiny space, let the people at least have their books with their 500 circulation. No, no, now people do not get their... Also, Tiny who space. told them? Who brought this to their attention? Or really the like network of like of, of informers is more yes, active than yeah. ever. The yeah, I have wondered about that because I've been told by somebody had to report this book for yeah, anybody that to even notice that they still that they have still in process. They've gotten called in about so somebody tattled obviously. And presumably, again, in this kind of endless expansion of their powers, what's what's happening is that. Um, there are more um, incentives being offered for reporting. Right. And then also that, like, when you encourage this, like, worst of all human behaviors, like, it brings out more, you know, natural informants or the kind of people who, you know, will look for this these sorts of opportunities or will do it because they're afraid if they don't do it, they'll get in trouble. Right. Well, like, like the character in Wretched Dreams. It, yeah. He was excited to become an informant. It gave him purpose. Right. I suppose there are those as well. So that's it. He's off to jail for five years. There is an appeals process, apparently. For a, I've never heard of a military verdict being overturned. No. I mean, at least there is now a movement to talk about it, a, movement, right. a protest movement. There was a letter written. Um, but the letter that's circulating doesn't have signatories. Uh, it's sort of a letter... That some people are posting, and so that sort of mm -hmm. makes them a signatory. Um, but it does not have signatories attached to it. I mean, I, you know, one can deplore these things. I cannot at all um, 
condemn the lack of support in a way because because I really don't know what kind of courage I would have. No, in these I don't want these. <laughs> when they can send you away for five years for no reason, you know how how much can people be expected? Uh, no, no, no. Definitely you almost not. have to have like anonymous campaigns of support. Find ways to uh, to sort of publicize the issue and publicize it to the outside world with w- w- while trying to minimize the risk to the individual organizers. Absolutely. No, We've I would entered be that territory. If, <sighs> yes, if, if somebody who, I mean, particularly, I mean, if something I said led to somebody being jailed, no. I mean, I suppose if you could get something where it was signed at the very beginning by hundreds of people, right. there's always this protection in numbers. Um, but who they started will, the position? They will petition. come. They, exactly, Ooh, yeah. they will come looking. They will come looking. It is really, really difficult. And also, you know, there have been really big campaigns um, around, uh, you know, journalists, uh, photographers, people who have been in prison for years, who have been on hunger strike, whose cases are absolutely egregious, who have gotten major international yeah. attention from, like, you know, I'm more familiar with journalists, but, like, like Shaukan... Shaukan is still not out. They won't let him out. His yeah. term is up. He's been at a freaking police station for a week. Like, what is going on? They're going to, like, kill I don't him before understand. they'll let him step yeah. across the threshold. And and this is someone who really his case has been very heavily publicized yes. by every international organization that could get implicated. And it still doesn't matter. So, And, and consistently. It did not fall out of people's attention. I know. I know. Because what price? What does it matter? Like, right, this is the right, thing is we're right. seeing this breakdown in, in that kind of pressure from international organizations used to come along with eventually also maybe some more like serious political Well, we, we know that Trump does not, in fact, right. deplore these things. No, no, not at all. Not at all. He's, he just, he, could, he really couldn't, He's in he couldn't team care less. He's in the New York Times. He couldn't care less. Um, uh, yeah. So Khaled's case has now been reported on Khaled Lotfi's case has, has been reported on in now it has been it's spread through the Arab Arabic media. Okay. I haven't seen any English language coverage of it other than, you know, obviously on Arab lit. Um yeah, but like you said, I I mean I think it's important to speak about it. I don't know that it would make any difference. But yeah, uh, but I words, am, I, I am words, doomed to words hope. versus actions. <laughs> I am nonetheless doomed to hope. I, I I think I think the the whole his whole discussion of you know um, it applies to so much like a kind of cultural work and intellectual work under the kind of political circumstances that we find ourselves in, not just in the region but also in 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 the West. I mean, there there are things going on that are so disturbing, and that talking about them. Uh, does not seem to the jailing of children. No, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about. It does not seem to accomplish anything, and so I think it is a kind of existential question about one's work uh, that 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 a lot of people face. Obviously, like you know, um, we we face it without having to face a lot of other harder questions about like personal risk. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, on Ooh. that. I don't think there's any way to kind of I really I really do believe it there's no point in um s- sort of some of the people that I know and I admire the most uh even though they've been you know uh, and rightly so like at, at times deeply depressed like their sort of attitude is this sentence to hope attitude of you have to find the grace notes you have to find a little pleasure in your life you have yes. to try and laugh you have to try to move forward you know, you have to fight. There's no, you can't just let yourself be in a state. There's something almost, uh, well, certainly not particularly useful and almost indulgent about just just sort of wallowing in how bad things are. And I think the people who are really on the front are not, they don't do that because they can't afford to. Right. So I do believe in trying to Right, I think a mother master is being a, a space of, Action and, and work, pleasure yeah, and yeah. joy, right, right, which you find from other people, which mm. you find, which you find, um, and also, uh, also vis a vis of the of the 
excuse my language, but, like, you know, these motherfuckers, like, not giving them the satisfaction of just yeah. being, like, you know what, you've destroyed all our hopes, like, we're just gonna, you know, be depressed forever, like, you win. Right, I'm yes, so sad. Yes, like, yes, I just, yes. I, I think it's... Right, no, hope is is also a way of pushing back. Yeah, hope and mockery, mm-hmm. I, I find sometimes very Salisburyan, like, right. but, um, yeah, it's, but it's hard to, it's hard to find that, it's hard to sort of hold on to that attitude sometimes. Yeah, but this collection by, by Wanus does have that. Yeah. He does not ever give up. He's down, he's out. He, you know, has his extremely long, dark period. No, and then the end of his life is very much a, like a final act of incredible kind of determination to have his say. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the in the face of his own mortality, no, it's it's quite something. Quite, quite, quite a story. Right. I will have pleasure even as I'm right. dying of cancer and I'm seeing the role of theater minimized and I don't see hope currently for Syria, etc. But nonetheless. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, I think we're going to stop there for today um, and uh, we'll be back soon. Um, it was great talking with you as usual, Marsha. Lovely talking to you as well. Goodbye. Bye.